This is episode 86 with the health editor of one of the largest blogs in the world, lifehacker.com, and the author of the new book, Genetics 101, From Chromosomes and the Double Helix to Cloning and DNA Tests, Everything You Need to Know About Genes, Ms. Beth Squarecki. I'm Jason Fitzgerald, and you're listening to the Strength Running Podcast. Today, I want to take a step back from the topic of running. Rather than talk about racing or workouts or recovery or strength training, I want to focus on how we think about our running, and more specifically, the mindsets or heuristics that help us evaluate health and fitness ideas. For example, do you know how to establish great sleep hygiene habits to sleep more soundly and recover more completely? Or how do you think about running safety? Is it just about running with a headlight? Do you understand how fuel is burned in the human body? Because if so, you'll get why the fat-burning zone is a myth. I'm joined today by Beth Squarecki. She's the health editor at Lifehacker, one of the biggest websites around where she writes and edits stories on all manner of health and fitness topics. This is going to be a very wide-ranging conversation, hitting on a variety of topics. But what I really want you to focus on is how Beth thinks about things. There are rarely absolutes. She acknowledges that there's much we don't know, and she recognizes that trial and error and experimentation are necessary. Beth is also the author of a new book called Genetics 101, From Chromosomes and the Double Helix to Cloning and DNA Tests, Everything You Need to Know About Genes. You can head on over to the Strength Running blog to find a link to her book, plus more information on the topics we discussed today, and today's sponsor, Hemp Daddy. Hemp Daddy's Therapeutics offers a line of CBD products to help you recover by sleeping more soundly and reducing stress and anxiety. Check out everything they have at hempdaddies.com. All right, now it's time for our conversation with Beth Squarecki. Please enjoy. Hey, Beth, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Hi, it's good to be here. So you are the health editor at Lifehacker, which I think gives you a really interesting look into you know, the entire health and uh, fitness industry. You're writing stories, you're doing research, talking to experts and editing different pieces that all focus on some aspect of improving your health. So this conversation is going to bounce around a lot. We're going to talk about a whole variety of things that I think are going to be really interesting to runners, like how to feel better in the morning when you wake up. I know I need some help there. How to make running in the dark safer, how to run in extreme cold, and a lot more. So I feel like I have a health and fitness oracle with me today. This is exciting. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm excited to jump into it. <laughs> well, I do have to say congrats also on the release of your second book, Genetics 101. Thank you. Um, I have an embarrassing genetic story for you. Uh, <laughs> I a couple years ago, I went out and bought Genome by Matt Ridley. I just wanted to to learn more about genetics, and uh, I read about half the introduction, and, I, and then I realized it was published more than a decade ago, and it was so outdated that I couldn't even read it. So that's the last time that I forget to check the publication date of a science book. <laughs> yeah, stuff stuff has been moving so fast. Um, you know, even when I wrote this, I was like, oh, yeah, basic genetics. I've, you know, like I majored in that. I've taught it a few times. And then I'm like, oh, but a lot has changed. Like things are changing, like at the moment. So, um, yeah, so it was fun to get to sort of brush up on things. And, you know, and I try to report on stuff, too, like whenever, you know, like DNA related stuff is in the news. Um, you know, it's a really like fascinating, but fast changing topic for sure. 
Can you give us some DNA trivia that might be interesting to runners? Okay, I can tell you um, about something interesting that I found um, when I was looking into some of these. Um, it, it didn't actually come from the book, but I was reading up on um, some some of these companies that say that like they'll test your DNA and then they'll tell you some things that are relevant to your health, so you can like make decisions about what to eat or whatever. Um, and it turns out a lot of those, you know, like they can't really give you more information than you would already have another way, you know, in terms of like already knowing your body or whatever. One thing that I found was really interesting is a lot of them will report this one specific gene, this one specific SNP um, that relates to, they'll tell you, it, it says something about whether you should be a sprinter or an endurance athlete. <laughs> I've gotten and, this. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I looked up, have you ever seen the study that that originally comes from? Like I haven't, how they, no. Um, it's a study where they looked at um, at a bunch of elite athletes in Australia. They were all white. They were all chosen because they had, you know, been in international competitions. So these are like Olympians and whatever. And they were looking at what at, for this one particular gene did they have it? Um, you know, looking at like at power and sprinting athletes versus endurance athletes, and they found that among these very, very, very elite sprinters. Um, not, like the, this one particular gene combination, none of the women had it and only 8% of the men had it. Whereas for endurance athletes, um, at this very, very elite level, it was, you know, a little bit more like some people had it, some people didn't. And that's really just where it came from. So it doesn't mean that if you have this gene that you will be an elite sprinter, and it doesn't mean that if you have it, you shouldn't be an endurance athlete because, you know, like 20% of the endurance athletes had the same genotype for this marker. Um, but then they'll take this and turn around and tell, you know, people who are not like Olympic Australians, you know, that it, you know, sort of hint that it means something for you and like what you should do. Um, and it's, you know, like there really isn't a basis for that. So I found that kind of interesting. You know, that is really interesting because I've had one of those tests. I had the 23andMe, both the ancestry and the genetic test done. Uh, I think they were having a sale like a year ago for Christmas. So I picked one up just because I was curious. And for this section, it said that uh, I forget the exact language, but it was something like I'm best suited for uh, powerlifting or something like that, which is just hilarious because, you know, if you've seen a picture of me racing, anybody listening to this who's met me, you know, I am five foot seven, 130 pounds. I am the prototypical uh, distance runner physique. And, uh, you know, I, I'm the kind of guy too that goes in the weight room and, you know, I can live for three months and my body doesn't really change very much. So I'm, I'm kind of, uh, resistant to, uh, changing your body through lifting, but, you know, running was something that, uh, you know, I, I had a knack for. And so, you know, I get those results and it's just like, well, I, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, when they're making these kinds of recommendations that it's probably not hundred percent accurate. Yeah. And because when you think about it, like this one gene, like this one, you know, it's not technically a gene, but like this one, you know, DNA variation that's in the, they think that that might be relevant because it's in this gene that relates to something about how your muscle fibers get built. But like all of the things that go into what kind of an athlete you are or what kind of sport you can excel at involves like so many other things about your body and your brain. You know, I also got a result on this that was not what I expected, you know, or not, you know, the conclusion was not what I con have concluded, you know, based on my experience. And it was like, oh, you would be better as an endurance athlete. You're, you know, forget sprinting and like, 
you know, just from my experience running, like I love to sprint. I do better at that than trying to, you know, handle like a long distance slog. I would love, you know, I, I really enjoy going to the gym and lifting and that kind of thing. But like, it's not just about this one factor of how your muscles are put together. It's about a whole bunch of other things that affect how your muscles are put together. It's about your like cardio endurance and everything that goes into that. It's about like your psychology, like what do you enjoy and what sorts of you know, like what kinds of results do you like to see or what do you find, a, you know, a fun or exciting, you know, thing to do or what training do you enjoy most? Like there's so many things that go into it, but we get this one result on this one test, not because it's the most important, but because it's the easiest thing to measure. Like there's one paper where they can point to this one result and be like, okay, we can tell you for sure, yes or no, do you have this SNP? But that's totally different from is that actually a useful piece of information for anybody? Yeah, it's a lot more complex than I think they're making it out to be. And and we have to be, I think, a little bit more humble with, you know, just recognizing how much we know and how much we don't know. Because I think when it comes to genetics, it's, it's, it's more of the latter. There's so much that we don't know. And, you know, this is a kind of a field of study and, and some of the technology around it, like CRISPR, are just so new and they're only you know, these are things that didn't even exist as a field of study when I was a kid. And so I I think we just have to be a little bit more humble and say, you know, we we need to work on it a little bit before we give people these kinds of recommendations. So yeah, yeah, Beth, let's let's talk about your 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 position at like life hacker, you're the health editor. um, And I think this is such an interesting job because you have your your hands in a lot of pots, you're doing a lot of different things. Uh, I want to ask you, you know, has your job changed your outlook on a particular topic or or what's been surprising that you've learned recently uh, because of, you know, your position at Lifehacker? Mm, That's a good question. Um, Let me think, what have I, it's like, I, I, I deal with so many different like stories and ideas and stuff that they're like in my head long enough that I can do the story and then they're back out. So, um, but I will say one thing that has sort of happened over the years as I've been, you know, as I've been writing for Lifehacker and thinking of stories for Lifehacker, um, that, you know, before I was at Lifehacker, I was into science and health and whatever, but it, you know, I would get like excited about a new paper that comes out or, or, you know, like some story here or there, but like being at Lifehacker, I have to think about what does this affect anybody's life as like a bottom line, you know, what is the, the impact on your life? What is the outcome here? In a sense, it sort of puts a damper on some of that, like, up and down excitement about like when there's a paper, you know, a new study out that says something really exciting. And now I look at that and I'm like, yeah, but should I really tell everybody to change what they do because of that? You know, and so I'm a lot less interested now in what's new and more interested in, um, you know, if I see an exciting new paper, I'll be like, okay, but what made them ask this question? Or, you know, what is the research that goes into this? And, you know, is this a, you know, a thing that people have been studying and understanding, and we can talk about that, versus, you know, getting caught up in like the smaller, the smaller picture. So I guess it's made me take like a bigger picture look at, um, you know, at like anything related to fitness and health. And anytime I talk to an author of a study, you know, I, I tell them, like, if I write about this, people are going to see my headline or whatever, and they're going to say, I should do this right now what do you think about that? And sometimes I get some interesting, you know, quotes or opinions on that where they're like, Oh, yeah, you could totally do this. You know, we don't know how well it'll work, you know, or sometimes they'll be like, No, don't don't take action on this right now. You know, so it's, 
it's kind of interesting when I have to like actually follow that train of thought all the way out to the reader saying, I'm going to do something different because of this. Um, and so that's been a very different outlook on things than just saying, oh, here's a, a study or a piece of information, you know, isn't that cool? It's almost like you recognize that your position also carries with it a fair amount of responsibility because you're communicating uh, new developments potentially in in the fields of science to a broad audience. And you have to be aware of, of how that might be taken. And, you know, I, I kind of look at the running industry and, and you know, the, the more general health, fitness, wellness industries. And, you know, it seems like whenever there's a new study that comes out, a new startup pops up, pops up like immediately, <laughs> and they're trying to take advantage of the one study that says, you know, XYZ can help your performance or help you recover faster. And and I think it's, uh, it's encouraging to hear you say, you know, now I'm not as interested in learning about what the new thing is. And I'm more interested in seeing, you know, how everything fits together. And I think that's a more comprehensive, holistic view of what's really going on. Yeah, yeah. And I think definitely, um, like people get excited about something because it's new or because it's like very specific. But a lot of what most of us need to hear, you know, or, or need to think about more is just like the basics, you know, like you get, you know, I, not that I can really put a number on it, but you probably get like 95% of, you know, the results you can expect in training from like, actually showing up and doing the training and from getting enough sleep. And, you know, and I listened to your your interview with um, Christy Schwanden, and she was, you know, she was saying like, sleep and relax and things like that. And, you know, it makes so much of a difference just to get the basics down. And people, you know, aren't necessarily doing the basics, but they want to know, like, what's the one little tweak that'll change everything? I have uh, not so fond memories of a phase of uh, my life where I got really into reading Men's Health magazine, and the beginning part of the magazine has all these tips on how to optimize your health, your fitness, your workouts, whatever. And I got so into, you know, swapping out black beans instead of brown beans because they said that was healthier or using red onions rather than white onions because they have more phytonutrients. And now that I look back on that, I am number one, a little embarrassed. So I guess this is embarrassing story number two for me in this <laughs> in like 12 minutes. But, uh, <laughs> you know, more it's like, you know, I I understand now that there's so much complexity and nuance to these issues that, you know, you kind of just have to sit back and say, healthy food is healthy food. You shouldn't try to optimize the last 1% because we probably don't know enough. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're, you're really just wasting a lot of energy and time. Yeah. I mean, I think people like to, you know, have a, a thing to focus on. But as you know, if you do that, like, just keep it in perspective, you know, like swapping your type of beans is not going to do nearly as much as like making sure that you can have a healthy meal that has some beans or some vegetables in it. You know, like you can put that effort into planning ahead to make sure you've actually packed your lunch and don't stop at McDonald's or something like that, rather than like shopping for these beans versus those beans. <laughs> Practical common sense. I love it, Beth. Um, now, I do want to dive into some specifics here, because uh, you've written a lot over the last couple months about some areas that I think are going to be uh, helpful for runners, uh, things that runners do. And I know for me, you know, getting up early in the morning used to be something I used to do uh, every day at 5am to go running. It was a very tough year for me because I'm not really a morning person. And, uh, you know, you recently wrote about how to, you know, learn how to wake up feeling better. And I don't think anybody likes being a groggy train wreck when they first get up out of bed. And uh, this is something that I struggle with. So, you know, 
how can you help me and other listeners who just want to wake up feeling more refreshed? Is this just about getting more sleep? Well, I think that's a big part of it. So I'm definitely not a morning person, but, um, you know, but I've, I've gone through phases of like getting up early because that's the best time I can get my workout in or whatever I need to do. And like, it really does have to start with getting enough sleep because, you know, no matter how crappy you feel right when you wake up at that moment that the alarm goes off and you're like, Oh crap, it's morning. Like if you have actually gotten a reasonable amount of sleep, that's a short period of misery. (laughs) You know, like once you're actually up and walking around, you're like, okay, all right, I'm awake. Um, so like there is that like foundation of, you know, like you need to have the rest so that you're not actually suffering all day from the fact that you woke up early. Um, but besides that, um, like, I, I think it's, it's kind of useful to think about like what actually influences your mood in the morning. And, um, you know, and sometimes there's, you know, sometimes there's something you can do that like just makes it better, you know, like if you don't like getting up in the dark and, you know, staggering around trying to do the things you need to do, like, you know, you can use like a one of those alarm clocks that wakes you up with light, or you can put on like happy music, like I'm sure we all have like, the playlist that you can't be miserable when you're listening to it. Um, So like, think about what kinds of things actually make you feel better. Um, And then another thing that helps is like to actually give some thought to when do you actually want to wake up? And, um, and so when I wrote this piece, I I figured it the way I figure it is like, you really need to figure out two times. What is the latest that you can get up that you won't be like mad at yourself? And then what is the earliest that you could get up that you would want to do everything you have to do? So, because like if you're setting your alarm too early, I mean, I know that I'll like hit the snooze button or whatever and be like, I don't actually need to be up now. And then I'm like mad at myself that I set the alarm that early or I'll set the alarm early and then I'll not want to get up and I'll, you know, maybe sleep in later or whatever. And then I'm, you know, and then I'm not realistic about when I actually have to get up or when I actually have to, you know, get moving on my first thing of the morning and then everything's rushed and then it's extra stressful because it's rushed. So, um, you know, so I think it's good to think about like, what's the time I want to get up and what's the, the latest that I would have to get up to not be miserable. And then like, once you actually give some thought to what those times actually are and put a concrete number on it, then you can pick which of those two times you want to do, or you can set an alarm for the one and then decide whether or not to sleep through it. Um, and so I found that that like just thinking about it that way kind of helps to set you up so that you, you don't feel either rushed or angry at yourself. How do you feel about a lot of the sleep hygiene tactics that are uh, pretty common these days? You know, things like, um, using blackout curtains or a sound machine or keeping your bedroom a couple degrees cooler than the rest of the house. Are, are those uh, actually effective at, at giving you a more sound sleep and helping you feel better in the morning? So from what, from what I understand, a lot of it does help. But, you know, it, it is a little bit person by person. But a lot of them, especially like having a lot of dark or making sure not to use your phone right before bed is an important one. It, it has more to do with like making sure you actually get your sleep when you get to bed. Um, and it has like maybe more to do with the quantity of sleep than the quality. Like, of course we want to like sleep as efficiently as possible and like get all that sleep in, in fewer hours. But like, it doesn't really work that way, but it's more like if you have your bedroom and your routine and everything set up so that when you go to bed, 
your body understands that it's bedtime and then you actually get to sleep right away. That's better than, you know, if you're like, you know, on your phone all evening and, you know, sleeping in a place that's like noisy and distracts you or whatever it might be. So I, you know, from, from my research, it seems to really come down more to the amount than to like any specific thing you do that would give you a better quality sleep. It's just like you're giving your body a chance to do the thing it needs to do. Yeah. And I'll say too, from personal experience that uh, I've had to figure out what works for me. So a lot of people need a sound machine. I don't necessarily need a sound machine, uh, but I really need it to be dark. And if, if I'm traveling and I'm staying with someone and I'm in a room where, you know, the sun is coming up at five 30 or six in the morning, that's when I'm getting up and there's no sleeping through that for me. So for me, I, you know, I've, I've kind of had to understand what makes me wake up earlier than I really want to. And, you know, try to take some steps to mitigate that. Um, you know, Beth, something else that that runners really struggle with that I wanted to dive in here with is, is running in the dark. Uh, I spent, you know, I mentioned getting up at five in the morning to do, you know, my running. And this was when I had my first job out of college, I had a really long commute. And if I wanted to get my training, that's when I had to do it. And it was awful because not only was it, you know, I was running around 530 in the morning on a um, you know, in the winter in Northwest, Bo- Northwest Boston, which you can imagine Ooh. that was, that was very challenging. Uh, it was just dark every morning. And, you know, with the snow, I'm like, you know, not on the sidewalk. I'm getting almost get hit by a car. Uh, what are your, what's your advice for making running in the dark safer and also just, uh, more bearable? Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I'm not like, the world's best expert on this. I hate running in the morning in the dark. And, but, but I found like, to me, it it really boils down to like deciding what, you know, amount of safety, you know, like where, where, where my line is for when I feel safe and when I don't. And I've decided, you know, and this might be sort of a, a wimpy outlook personally, but I've decided that if it's dark and if the weather is such that it could be icy, then I don't go out in the dark. I'll either reschedule to later in the day or I'll go on the treadmill or something like that because I've had a few experiences where I thought I would be okay and then I'm running and it's dark and I come up against ice where I don't expect it, you know, and I haven't like gotten hurt that way yet. But, um, you know, but that's sort of like where I personally draw the line. But that also means that, you know, like if I'm doing this first thing in the morning, I look at the weather the night before and I say, okay, the weather is likely to be this, you know, or it's been wet and it's going to freeze overnight. And so, you know, like that's my, my treadmill day, or that's my day that I'm going to go on this park that I know they always, you know, plow certain paths or whatever it might be. Um, but also, you know, just the basic things that, you know, people need to do is, you know, to think about like, what lights are you going to bring with you? Like a lot of people wear a headlamp or carry a flashlight. Um, But then you also have to think about like, how are you going to be visible to everyone else? Like to cars and, you know, to other pedestrians. Like I know I've been, you know, walking or running in the dark and like, it's really creepy when you don't know that another runner is coming up or like a person with a dog (laughs) and like, they'll be right next to you and scare you because you didn't see them coming if they didn't have a light or they didn't have something reflective. Um, you know, so it's, it's really, I think, mostly just about thinking through it beforehand. And like, what are you comfortable with? And what are you what steps are you taking to see? And what are you steps? What steps are you taking to be seen? 
what I thought was really helpful about this is that you you kind of set up a framework for helping you make the decision on whether or not you should go out there and run. So it's not just if it's dark, I'm not going to run. If it's light out, I am going to run. It's well, if it's dark and it's icy, then I'm going to reschedule my workout. And, and I think that's really helpful. You know, it's it's a, more like a combination of multiple factors that can influence whether or not you're actually going to do your run. So, for example, if it's dark out and you're traveling and you don't know if the area where you might be running is safe or not, that might be a, a good way of saying, well, then I'm not going to take that risk. I'll either run when it's uh, there's more light or I'll find a treadmill or, or simply take the day off and you know live to run another day. Yeah. And that's actually, that sort of gets back to the waking up early thing where I'm not a morning person. So I found that if I wake up and I'm not sure what I'm going to do, I will waste time and I'll try to talk myself out of it and whatever. So I, I kind of have some hard and fast rules for myself. And, you know, like that rule about whether it's icy, like if it's going to be freezing overnight and it was, you know, wet the day before, you know, like that's one of my rules. So I've, I like I give myself hard and fast rules so that I can wake up in the morning and, you know, check the weather or look out the window, whatever I need to do. And then I have my answer. I don't have to think about it. I don't have the option of changing my mind in the morning. It's like, if it's this, I follow this rule. And if it's that, I follow that rule. And that also means having my backup plan in place. So, you know, I'll wake up and if I decide not to run, then it's, okay, am I running at lunchtime? When and where? And do I have that time in my schedule? Or do I, you know, or am I using that morning time to go to the gym and go to the treadmill? And I know, you know, exactly where you know, exactly where I'm going, exactly when I'm going, like, I have that backup plan, I don't wake up and say, eh, I don't feel like it, maybe I'll run later. So like, I've got those, like, concrete rules that I can work from. Yeah, I think it's helpful too, just to uh, know the area that you're going to be running in. Because once you once you really understand your neighborhood, your town, your city, wherever you might live, you understand where the best places are for running under different situations. So yeah. for example, you know, when I when I was training a lot with a, a friend of mine who's who's also a big runner, you know, we were probably running I don't know, sometimes twice a day. I think we were running over 80 miles a week. And it got really hard in uh, a Massachusetts winter to do this. But we live near MIT. And MIT did an excellent job of plowing and shoveling their roads and sidewalks on a certain area of their campus. And it was near all their athletic fields. And so I have all these memories of running 10, 12 miles of just endless loops around their campus because we could do that in the winter. And it was similar too on, you know, Massachusetts Avenue right there near MIT, also where I lived at the time, because there were a lot of lights and there was a fair number of people too, even, you know, even if it was kind of an off hour. And I knew that if it was dark out, I could just run on a main road and I I would have a sidewalk. Uh, It was usually well shoveled. And there would be a lot of light. So knowing your area can be really helpful for the, the situation that you're in, whether it's like snowing a lot and, and you can't really get outside, but you know that, you know, that one business does a great job of shoveling their huge parking lot and I can get in a, you know, a five mile run doing big loops around there. Or if it's dark and you know an area that's really well lit. So I think, you know, being yeah. a, more of a, an educated consumer of running routes is a good idea. Yeah. And I definitely have places that you know, if I think about it, it's like, I know which places tend to be like plowed well or salted well, but then some of those places have more traffic during rush hour, but then not at all at other times. And some places are really, you know, are the places where I feel safer when it's dark. And, you know, and so like, 
considering all of those factors, you have to sort of put it together and be like, oh, this is the perfect time to go run in that neighborhood or, oh, this is the perfect time to go run in that park. And yeah, that's that's exactly what I do. I, I think about those factors. Yeah, it's almost like a puzzle. It's a, a long <laughs> series of if then statements. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I said we we're going to bounce around a lot and I'm going to hold you to that. So uh, I want you to tell me if my family has been wasting money on elderberry syrup this year. <laughs> we've, been, mm -hmm. we've been taking this supplement uh, just to hopefully either stave off a cold or uh, in case of some members of my family to get over their cold quicker. It's not something I'm, I'm very uh, supportive of. I, I don't think there's a ton of science behind it, but my wife is saying, hey, why not? So what's going on with elderberry syrup? Well, let me ask you one question first. Do you know if it's um, a homeopathic one or a non-homeopathic elderberry syrup? Um, that's a that's a great question. I, I don't I don't know. So so that makes a big difference. If it's called a, if they're calling it a syrup, it's probably not homeopathic. Um, and the difference is that homeopathic, if it's made properly, which is hard to guarantee, if it's made properly, it's got nothing in it, like literally nothing. Um, or, or sometimes it has a very tiny amount of something in it. Um, those are always a waste of time. Like if you're thinking about buying something, look at whether it says homeopathic and if it does, just don't buy it. Um, because best case scenario is it does nothing. Worst case scenario is they didn't prepare it right. There've been a few examples of this in the news over the last few years. Um, and it could actually have something dangerous in it. Um, but most of the elderberry syrup, is that you can buy is like a syrup that actually has like some elderberry fruit in it. Um, and I say most because they will have these two different kinds right next to each other on the shelves. So you have to be careful, like under the same brand names even. Um, but in terms of like an actual elderberry syrup, the thing is like, there's no good research saying that it does anything. Now, there's also not you know, there's not a lot of research saying like, oh, it's guaranteed to do nothing. Because it's really hard to <laughs> to get that kind of research on, you know, a lot of these, um, you know, like remedies that people like to use for their cold. But like personally, I wouldn't. Right. Like it's probably not doing anything. We don't have any good evidence to suggest that it does do anything. Um, there are a few like very small studies where they gave it to some people who had a cold and their cold was, you know, like they said they felt better, you know. But that's, you know, if you think about it you know, sort of how the placebo effect works is like, you're trying to get some kind of question about the body, like, have you recovered from this cold? But the only way you can really measure that is by asking a person like, so how do you feel? How does this part feel? You know, like, do you have more or less of a cough or whatever? And so you're sort of asking the brain to give its opinion on how the body is doing. And the placebo effect is, you know, the placebo effect means a lot of different things. Um, but uh, we can get into that later. But like the, you know, like you're asking the brain, but the brain is also the same thing that's thinking, I bought this elderberry syrup on this day that my cough was the worst it's been. So I'm expecting to be better now. And, you know, so because it was the worst that it's been, you're probably going to feel better anyway. But also, you're also sort of optimistic about it usually, and you want to give a good answer about, um, you know, and you want to feel like it did something. Um, so it's like really hard for us to judge for ourselves whether a thing like this is actually working. Um, but according to the science, like we really don't have any evidence that 
suggest that it's actually doing anything. So in terms of whether you're wasting your money, I, I sort of see it as like, if you, if you knew that this was a waste, would you feel bad that you had spent the money on it? And for some people, they're like, sometimes people just want a thing to take, you know, because it makes them feel like they're doing something. And honestly, if that makes you feel better, that's fine. But just recognize that that's what you're doing. This is fascinating because I had almost the same conversation with Christy Ashwanden in a prior podcast episode talking about recovery from, you know, like a physical workout or race. And, you know, I use the analogy of, you know, after a marathon, a lot of folks will get a massage and then in the next coming days, they start feeling great and they say, wow, that massage did a lot to make me, uh, you know, to quicken my recovery after the marathon. But then again, it's also four days post-marathon. You should start to be feeling better now. And it's just this this tricky situation where <laughs> you don't actually know what's making you feel better. Um, and that placebo effect could be, you know, convincing you that it was it was the massage or the fact that you started taking elderberry at the peak of your cold. Well, you're probably going to get better no matter what. So was it the elderberry or was it just the natural cycle of you being sick? Really, really interesting. And, you know... I, 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 I loved I love talking about this because it's it's essentially the same concept applied to a very different scenario. And it's it's almost convincing me that I should not believe what my brain is ever telling me. <laughs> well, I mean, if your brain is telling you something that you like to hear, like you don't you don't have to decide not to listen to it, you know? Like it's like it's okay to feel feel like, hey, I feel better because I did this. But you know, focus on the fact that you're feeling better, not on, you know, don't go and tell all your friends that they have to go and do, you know, this thing that you just did. Um, you know, like, just make sure you're, you're, you're not like giving something more credit than it really deserves. Yeah, I do just like them because they taste so good. I think we have the gummies, actually. It's not syrup, it's gummies. Okay, maybe that's homeopathic. I have to go check the label. Yeah, I, th I think the homeopathic ones are usually like a like a tiny little pill or something like that. So it might not be. Yeah. You know what, Beth? You know what I think would be interesting? I'm going to go get the bottle so we can actually compare. It'll take but a moment. I'll be back in a second. We're going to edit out the dead space. Do you mind? Sure. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. One second. Okay. I am back. I have run up the stairs and down. <laughs> uh, let's see. I have... Uh, Nature's Way Sambuca's Gummies Standardized Elderberry Dietary Supplement. Okay, that, that sounds good. So if you turn it over, the really easy way to tell is turn it over. Does it say Supplement Facts? Uh, supplement Facts. Yeah. So the, so this is a dietary supplement. So it's regulated not as a food, not as a drug, not as a homeopathic drug, but as a supplement. So just like a vitamin or anything like that. So. Um, so that will have some amount of elderberry in it. Does it say how much? Yeah, it says there's 50 milligrams of black elder. Uh, the extract is standardized from 3.2 grams of premium cultivar el elderberries. Okay. Yeah, and I, I don't recall offhand, you know, whether that's a lot of elderberry or a little. I don't know. But it, but at least it's not the homeopathic one. Yeah, okay. Um, so at least we have that one. Um, might just I mean, get through this bottle and uh, not buy another one. Thank you, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if right. you think about it, like if they were like strawberry gummies, you know, like, okay, hey, if you like the taste and, you know, like whatever, if that's like your comfort food, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it to do anything for your health. Let's put it that way. 
Good to know. As we learned in our interview with Christy, what makes you feel better is probably good for recovery. So I think that that psychological boost is is probably helpful, whether it's a placebo effect or there's something else going on too. But mm-hmm. of course, you know, talking about this, trying to prevent colds, it's cold season, uh, which means it's really cold out. I'm actually looking outside my window here. It's like a blizzard. We're getting another uh, two to five inches today in Denver. And, you know, this this whole weather we're experiencing right now, you know, some parts of the U.S. have been experiencing literally the same air as the North Pole with like minus 40 degrees in some parts of the Great Lakes states. Um, You know, I actually have a a runner in Michigan and she's having a tough time right now. So (laughs) I want to talk about um, how to run in in weather like this, Uh, you know, some of these more extreme cold temperatures. Is there uh, a cutoff point where you just shouldn't go outside and exercise? Because I know this, and and beyond just personal comfort levels, you know, I've coached someone in uh, Sweden and Alaska, and, you know, they go off for runs when it's negative 20, and they don't think anything about it. But at what point is it just probably not very safe? I mean, I don't know if there's you know, like a, like a, a hard standard for all human beings, you shouldn't go out past, you know, blank temperature, but I think you have to consider it, you know, in relation to like, what are you prepared for? Um, cause like, yeah, sometimes people will go out in those negative temperatures and they'll put on ski goggles and they'll like Vaseline up their face and, you know, whatever they need to do to protect themselves. Um, but you know, I think for most of us, it's, you know, it's more a matter of like, okay, have you layered appropriately? And do you know, like, do you actually know whether these layers are going to work for you in this temperature, which takes a little bit of trial and error? Um, you know, we did a video at Lifehacker about like, here's what to wear at 50 degrees. Here's what to wear at 40 degrees. And we went on down and we stopped, I think, at 10 degrees, which is sort of like my personal stopping point. Like after that, I'm like, oh, I'd rather stay in. Um, but, you know, but everybody like some people don't mind the cold as much as others or, you know, run hotter, like their body temperature keeps them warmer than others. Like there's always, you know, some guy out there in shorts in a blizzard. Um, but it's more like, what are you personally prepared for? What do you feel confident with with the, you know, the equipment that you've got, um, you know, and like how do your how does your body respond and, and everything? So I, I tried looking to see if there's um if there's like a good cutoff point that people agree on and it really seems to be different no matter like depending on who you ask. Um, and I'm sure if you, you talk to runners who are, you know, in Sweden or in Minnesota or in Canada, that they would have a very different answer than, you know, talking to people who live in a warmer place who, you know, won't even bother if they would have to put a jacket on. So I think it really depends. Yeah, my my athletes in Florida have a very different perspective on the cold than my athlete in Alaska. I'll say that. <laughs> now, you mentioned uh, layers, and and this is a really really important. One of the really interesting thing I, I recently learned about layers is that you know it you can have a lot of very thin layers or one really thick, very effective layer, and you know the result is pretty much the same. But uh, I think for running there's more of a formal layering system because, you know, you're going to be sweating a lot when you're out there, uh, even if it is really cold. How do you layer yourself so that, you know, you're staying warm, but you're also kind of optimized for running? So I I guess I usually start off by like, if it's cold, I think about, is it also wet, you know, and then if it is, you want to have something on top that, you know, is a barrier, Um, you know, either windproof or, you know, waterproof or water resistant and, 
you know, you've got to think about like what you have and like, like the best jacket that I have is not a hundred percent waterproof and I have to keep that in, in, in mind, you know? Um, and you sort of like, I, I think it has so much to do with personal preference. Cause like, I think about like what I like to wear, but I also know, you know, for any given temperature, I can think of people that would wear a lot less and people that would wear a lot more. Um, I find that if I, that I usually have to put more, um, more layers on like my extremities than like, I, I think about extremities as separate from core. I think about like, will my hands feel cold while I'm running as a totally separate question from how warm is my body going to get? And, you know, and so sometimes I think, oh, I would want, you know, like some things with long sleeves, but not, you know, but I don't want too many layers on my core or, you know, or if it's not a windy day, I might go the other way around and, you know, think in terms of like, you know, a tank top or a vest or something. Um, you just kind of have to think about like, what are the, the conditions and it's a little bit different from the temperature. Um, and, and to, to that point too, I also, when I'm looking at the temperature for the next day, I don't always look at the temperature. I look at the feels like number or the wind chill. Um, because you know, like dressing for 30 degrees and sunny is very different from dressing for 30 degrees where it says feels like 20. Yeah. That's important too. Cause it's, you know, it, it almost doesn't matter what the temperature is. It just matters how it feels to you. And and there's so many other factors like humidity and wind that'll play in there. Now, what if you don't plan well and you know, you're out there and you're really uncomfortable? What are the early warning signs of, say, frostbite and hypothermia? Oh, yeah. So that's a good question, especially like with these like super cold um, temperatures that we've been having. Um, so, yeah, so the the... The weird thing about this is that, um, you know, with frostbite, which I've never had, but I, I did some reading up on it for an article recently, like you usually don't notice it on yourself. And so that's something where, um, you know, where it can really help to have somebody with you or something like a lot of stories of frostbite are, you know, oh, I came in from the cold. I couldn't feel my fingers, but whatever. I, you know, I was cold. I couldn't feel my fingers. And then somebody else noticed that my fingers looked white and waxy. Or something like that. Um, and frostbite, if we're talking about that, happens usually on like fingers and toes, but it can also happen on your face, like ears, nose, chin. Um, and, you know, and so it's, um, you know, so like very often somebody else will see it on you. Um, and if there's any like redness or pain that goes along with, you know, being cold and numb for a long time, that's like an immediate, you know, get out of the cold and, you know, take care of this. Well, I, that's good to know. I didn't know that sometimes frostbite was something that you don't notice on yourself. Uh, so I think if I'm ever dealing with something that's really cold, you know, kind of hurts a little bit, I'll have someone else look at it. I think that's a good good advice there. Now, what about hypothermia? Um, so hypothermia um, is low body temperature. So frostbite is like literally your tissues are starting to freeze, right? So it can only happen in freezing temperatures. Hypothermia is like any low body temperature. So you can have that sometimes like that's why, you know, a lot of races will hand out like those silver blankets, because you know, like if it's a chilly day, and you're sweating, you know, like that can cool you down a lot. And hypothermia can happen anytime that you're losing heat faster than your body can make it. Um, so it can so it happens a lot in, you know, if you're like cool and wet, but it can also happen in extreme cold. Um, 
And this is another thing that like another person might notice about you before you notice about yourself because, um, you know, you'll be like, yeah, I'm cold. Um, but you know, if you have hypothermia that can actually affect your brain's functioning. And so you can be sort of confused or out of it. So you might not realize what's going on. Um, and so, you know, some signs that they say somebody might notice about you or that you could notice about somebody you're with is, you know, somebody who's like confused or slurring their speech. They might look drunk almost, you know, and also just being like very low energy or like exhausted and you might have like trouble moving or trouble like holding things like your hands might like fumble things. Um, and so either, so, and like hypothermia is like a medical emergency. And um, frostbite is also a, you know, get the person to an emergency room or something if you can. Um, and actually, in my research, I was, you know, reading, like, what does the CDC say about this? And they actually say, if somebody has frostbite, you need to ask yourself two questions. One is, can I get this person medical help? You know, like, if you're in a city versus, like, out in the wilderness. Um, and do they have hypothermia? Because if they do, that's your top priority. When I hear about hypothermia, I, I can't help but not think about, I think it was the 2017 Boston Marathon when it was like 34, 35 degrees and just driving rain and wind. And that was a really hard race for that reason. It was some of the some of the coldest conditions that you can run in because you're you're almost not going to really uh stay dry you know like there's no way to stay dry when it's just pouring rain out there and you have to be running for hours and it's also just a marathon where you have people out there for longer than any of their long runs and they're out there running at a, a relatively lower intensity than most other races and mm -hmm. on top of all that they're also they, they have a much higher drive to finish than if they were simply doing a long run. So you, you end up kind of having this perfect storm of conditions where someone can get really, really cold and, and, and they may just keep trying to finish. They might start walking and, and that as a coach, that just makes me really nervous. So if, if anybody listening is in those kinds of, uh, that kind of a situation, just do the best you can with understanding, you know, how you feel and don't hesitate to get to a medical tent if you start feeling a little weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good advice. Um, lastly, Beth, I want to talk about heart rate training zones. Uh, this is something that, uh, you know, many runners ask me about, and it's honestly not that common in running you know it's not used very much in running these zones are much more common among cyclists but nevertheless uh, i want to clear the air about the most known zone of all we've probably seen it on every stairmaster or treadmill or you know stationary bike in the gym and that's the fat burning zone what are your thoughts on the fat burning zone so the fat burning zone is not true except in a completely useless technical sense <laughs> All right. So it's fake. All right. Great, Beth. It's been uh, wonderful talking to you. <laughs> great. great. <laughs> um, and I had a lot of angry email about this afterwards. And, you know, like there's so much misunderstanding about it. And there, there has been like, I think it started as something that was supposed to be good advice. But when you call something the fat burning zone, people are like, oh, I want to lose fat. So I should exercise in the fat burning zone. And then they read like some of these explanations um, that say either why it's technically correct or why somebody thinks you should exercise there, which are two different 
you know, explanations and like they put it all together and they're like, I will burn fat by exercising in the fat burning zone. And that's, that's not how it works. Right. So, you know, in turn, if you want to burn calories, you can exercise in whatever zone you want. If you exercise very intensely, you'll burn a lot of calories fast, but you'll get tired quickly. And if you want to, you know, or, you know, like you could, you could run really fast for a short time, or you could walk really slow for a really long time. Um, and, you know, and so like both of those approaches work and you can kind of pick what you want. Um, so when people started talking about the fat burning zone, uh, like back in like the seventies or eighties or, or whenever it started to become like a buzzword, um, they were talking about like just being in a zone where you're exercising aerobically, right? So you're like not, you know, using your like glycogen and, um, ATP primarily, but like you're burning a lot of fat as part of your metabolism because you're like burning fuel slowly. And so that includes like pretty much every, you know, level of intensity that people will like run or jog in when it's not like a sprint. All right. So, um, but then I, I, I'm guessing that when they, they started like putting, um, you know, charts on every Stairmaster, they, they wanted to like break it up a little bit more or something. So you end up with the fat burning zone being like this particular low intensity zone. And, um, and so like a lot of times, like there, there was a lot of advice, still is a lot of advice to beginners saying like, stay in this zone. It's still good exercise. You're still getting a good workout from it. You're still burning fat, you know, stay in this zone. You won't get too tired whatever. And that's all true. Um, but it's also not like you have to stay in that zone. You know, it just means like easy exercise. So if you want to have easy exercise, then, you know, exercise at this lower intensity, you know, which might be like a brisk walk or a very slow jog. Um, but if you want to run faster, like fine, run faster. You know, you're not, you're not at a fat burning disadvantage in terms of how much fat you could lose at the end of the day. Um, by exercising harder. Um, and so sometimes some of, some of this angry email I was getting was pointing out people saying like, well, but you burn a greater percentage of your, your like fuel burn is fat at this lower intensity level. And that's true. But you know where you get an even greater percentage of your fuel burn is fat is when you're sleeping or when you're just sitting around, you know, <laughs> because it's because low intensity, right? Yeah, like you're if you look at, you know, like how many calories you burn sitting on the couch, you burn like most of them from fat and a tiny bit from other sources. When you start to like get up and walk and run and do other things, you're still burning about the same amount from fat, maybe a little bit more, but then you're making up the rest of that energy in, you know, these these other sources. So, like your fat burning is sort of constant-ish. Um so like that shouldn't be your deciding factor in what intensity to exercise at. There are so many other things to think about when you're planning out, you know, what kind of a workout you want to do. Yeah, fat burning is it's almost like a sliding scale. And the the more intense the exercise, the the lower the percentage of fat that you're going to burn as, you know, a percentage of total calories. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it, it kind of really 
picks up after you start going anaerobic. So when, when you're aerobic, it's much more fat. Once you start running anaerobically, which is anything faster than tempo or lactate threshold pace, yeah, it, it, you start really jacking up the carbohydrate demands. Uh, but that's just kind of the way your body works. You know, carbohydrate is much more efficient fuel for, uh, you know, that that kind of exercise. And as runners, you know, listening to this podcast, you know, our goal is not to, to exercise in a certain zone. Our goal is, is running performance. It's to hit a certain time. Maybe you want to run a, a certain distance for the first time ever, but you know, we have to focus on training and the training that you're going to do as a, as a runner is going to include many different effort zones. And, and really as runners, we should call them pace ranges. You know, it's your, it's your recovery effort. It's your easy run effort. Then there's tempo pace. And then you have all the other paces that are much faster uh, than than your tempo effort. But you know, you put all those together and you get a a fast, probably lean athlete because you're just really exercising in so many different areas and burning such a wide variety uh, of fuel sources that, you know, that that I think is the most effective approach, which is just variety. Yeah. And like you you have each of those effort levels or pace levels because of some specific thing that it works on for you, which is not, you know, just like, okay, metabolically, how much fat am I burning, but because of all the different benefits that each of those has, and you know, what you work at each, at each pace and how it all puts together, you know, like you said, at the end of the day, like what you or after, you know, a training, you know, a training period, like what happens to that athlete at the end of it. And, you know, that's what really matters. Yes, exactly. You know, every run has a purpose. Your recovery run is there just to kind of pad your weekly mileage, active recovery, and, you know, just to kind of get in some extra mileage. Whereas, you know, the purpose of a long run or a track workout or a tempo run or a, a series of strength exercises in the gym, they all have their, their place. You know, I always laugh at these training methods or, you know, kind of more these branded kind of approaches to running that over-focus on one end of the spectrum. So you have the Maffetone method on one side where, you know, you're only going to be running very aerobically at, at a pretty slow, low-intensity pace. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have CrossFit Endurance where, you know, we're not really going to do much at all of easy running and we're going to do a lot of really fast intervals and high-intensity interval training and things like that. Whereas, you know, you go to any uh, elite program or, or college track or cross country program in the country and, and dare I say the world. And nobody is doing this. You know, <laughs> everybody is, is kind of training the, the way distance runners train, which is a very wide variety of paces and efforts, but overall, most of it is pretty easy. And, and I think it's always, uh, telling when you look at one of these kind of extreme approaches to, you know, whether, whether it's training for a race or, or even for weight loss, you look at these extreme approaches and they're always kind of missing a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of the time, some of these approaches are, are attractive because they're simple. Like, you know what you're going to have to do, you know, or like if you hop on a Stairmaster and you're like, what should I do today? Like, you can just sort of look at the screen and, you know, there's a button to push or a chart to look at and you're like, okay, I'll do that. Um, you know, or like you show up to CrossFit and you know, you're always in for a certain kind of workout. So, you know, I mean, I, I think there's like a little bit of utility to having something that you're like mentally comfortable with because it's easy, but you know, to also recognize that like it's appealing because it's easy, not because it's, you know, like you have to, to question whether that's actually appropriate for your goals. Exactly. 
I love it. Beth, thank you so much for sharing everything that you've shared today. You're, this is such a wide-ranging conversation, and I know I learned a couple things. Now, for our listeners who want to learn more about your work and your adventures, I know I certainly enjoy following along. Where can we find you online? So I write for Lifehacker, so that's just lifehacker.com. Um, and Lifehacker has a, a Twitter and an Instagram that are both just at Lifehacker. And then if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter as uh, Beth SKW. Great. Well, I will link that up if, in case people want to check you out. And also, uh, I'll include a link to your book, Genetics 101, From Chromosomes and the Double Helix to Cloning and DNA Tests, Everything You Need to Know About Genes. So really interesting for uh, some of the more science-oriented folks in our, our listenership here. Great. And it's been great to be here. And that's my conversation with Beth Squarecki. I hope you'll find her online and follow her evidence-based work. It cuts through a lot of the noise out there on the internets. And don't forget that links to her book, topics related to our conversation, and more are all located on the Strength Running blog at strengthrunning.com. Finally, a big thanks to Hemp Daddy's Therapeutics for sponsoring today's show. Started by a Colorado trail runner, Hemp Daddy's offers full-spectrum CBD oil to help athletes recover more fully. Now, CBD is the non-psychoactive component of marijuana, so it's not going to get you high or anything like that, and it can actually help you reduce inflammation, fall asleep faster, sleep more soundly, and reduce stress and anxiety. Their products are third-party lab-tested to ensure purity, and if you don't like the oil, you can always get capsule or lotion form. Now, I've personally been using CBD oil for about two weeks now, and I've had some pretty good results. I find that I'm able to sleep better. I have a history of waking up at you know, one or two in the morning and having a tough time falling back asleep, and that hasn't happened since when it typically will. And I agree, I do agree with the sentiment that CBD can help you improve your general feeling of well-being. I'm living it and experiencing it, and I think it's a good experimentation for you to try if you want to take your recovery up a notch. Check out all of their options at hempdaddies.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Strength Running Podcast. We'll be in touch soon. <laughs>